Anthony, I, I want to backtrack into you know the sensitive topic of race uh, because you are in a unique position to know the president pretty well. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to psychoanalyze him or... He's a white supremacist. Let's yeah. put it on the table. He, he's a white supremacist. I'm Perry Rogers, and I'm a brand specialist. I'm Ed Borgato, and I'm an investor. And our conversations are about the tension between the head and the heart in the way people make decisions and their point of view on important issues. This is The Head and the Heart. Welcome, everyone, to The Head and the Heart. This is Perry Rogers. And this is Ed Borgato. Remember that our show is available on Spotify, Podcast One, and Apple Podcasts. Anthony Scaramucci is the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative asset management firm. He's also the man behind the Skybridge Alternatives Conference, known as SALT. It's really one of the premier investment conferences uh, in the business and investment world, uh, bringing together presidents and governors, business giants, movie stars, and athletes. Uh, He's also the author of a book called Trump, The Blue Collar President. And famously, for 11 days in the summer of 2017, he was the White House communications director. Anthony, welcome. You're not going to mention I got fired at or, or is that, is that because everybody knows I got fired or you just, well, because I think, I think that's what makes light as we skip the the, uh, (laughs) podcast started. I I think that's what makes it famously um, your, your reign there. Yeah. Well, and look, it was brutal. I mean, that that was literally like the Shawshank redemption. You know, I, I don't recommend that you have a super high profile fail like that where you're getting lit up by every newspaper and you're getting, uh, you're getting blown out by every uh, uh, late night com- comedian. You know, well, you, you've handled it really well. And it, it takes me to really the first thing I wanted to ask you about, because go back to the beginning, because what a lot of people forget is that you were prepared to sell your firm. And in fact, had negotiated sale of your firm and you were going to work in the administration right from the start before you got the gig as communications director. Yeah. And I'll be honest with you. I, you know, I, I, I wondered like, is that a good trade? Like, why is Anthony doing that? T- tell oh, us about that time. I was stupid. It was, it was a stupid trade. It was, uh, it was born from ego and it was born from pride. And so what ends up happening to you, I guess uh, you're manifesting your life and you see yourself a certain way and then the world kicks you in the teeth and then, you are the way you are, not the way you necessarily see yourself. And so at that moment in my life, rightly or wrongly, I was visualizing this idea and this narrative that I grew up in a blue collar family. I had built two very you know, reasonably successful businesses on Wall Street. And now I had the opportunity to go serve in the White House. And, you know, I don't know, there was something romantic about that to me. Uh, and I did what many people did. Uh, John Kelly did this. Uh, James Mattis did this. Secretary Tillerson did this. The flaps go over the ears. The flap comes down over the eye shade. And you choose to overlook things that the president of the United States is doing, which are very abnormal. They're abnormal from a behavior perspective. They're ha- abnormal from a hatred perspective. And you're, you're, you're making a classic mistake. Look, I have to own that mistake for the rest of my life because it's instructive But uh, that was a case where my pride and ego were going through the roof. And when that happens, your emotions go high and your intelligence goes low. And so what should have happened to me when Reince Priebus and Steve Bannon blocked my original job, 
I should have taken that as a signal not to go into the administration. And yeah, so, they really torpedoed you. They did. Yeah, they and you, and, you had, and you had everything on the line. Mm-hmm. You, you had a deal pending to sell your business. Yeah, they came at me very hard. And then they because and I did I, I didn't realize that at the time because I was politically naive. I had four bids on my company. Uh, the second highest bid was from the Chinese, but the Chinese were promising to keep my employees. The New, New York based private equity firms that wanted to jettison all the employees, they really just needed the assets. I didn't want to do that to all those people that helped me build the company. And so I sold to the Chinese. Of course, it had to then go through CFIUS. Um, um, I was told that they rejected it in CFIUS because of national security reasons uh, related to technology. Here here was the technology at my business. Okay, this is a 1990s. ALF, ALF was using this phone in the 1990s sitcom. And this was the technology I had in my business, but they said it was a national security thing. So, so what do you learn from that, Ed and Perry? What do you learn from that? No whining, no complaining, soldier on, and you, and you go back to your business. But I called President Trump. I said, these two guys are super bad guys, and uh, you're going to want to get rid of these guys. And when you do, give me a call. I'm going to take them lights out. So that is a mistake of ego. That's a mistake of pride. And sure enough, the president called me and there I was on July 21st uh, in the press room doing the White House press conference, uh, fielding questions from a non-COVID-19 press. So the place was packed. There was probably 300 people in that room. Maybe 50 million people globally saw it. And I tried to answer every question. And then I walked upstairs and uh, the fight started. Hmm. You weren't alone, though, in thinking that the relationship could be different. General Kelly once said to you that all relationships end badly with the president. Uh, right. And you know he was drawn in. You were drawn in. A bunch of people have, were, were drawn in. What did you learn about kind of the intoxication of power and how we can all fool ourselves to create a different narrative? Well, some of the some of the cliches that our grandparents told us are really true. You know, or what, what Lord Acton said that uh, uh, power corrupts, but absolute power, Perry, corrupts absolutely. And so uh, one of the reasons why the founders, in their great wisdom, they tried to create this diffuse power structure at the top. Why did they do that? Because they had experienced dictatorial rule or monarchical rule in, in Europe and it comes with lots of negative consequences. And so uh, what the founders firmly believed, it was sort of a Lockean, John Locke, J.S. Mill principle uh, that if you diffuse power at the top, you set up the appropriate checks and balances. When did the uh, Roman Empire flourish? It was really more under the Republic than it was under the autocracies, starting with Caesar Augustus. And so they wanted to set it up that way. They were also very concerned about majority rule. They wanted to make sure that minorities had some level of power. That's why they created the Senate. So the state of Rhode Island has two senators and the state of Connecticut has two senators, but so does the state of California. And so they did it that way so that you would always have a check in the system. The Electoral College was exactly that. They didn't They didn't believe that the mob rule should be what happened, but there needed to have some, that needed to be some power uh, placed in the minority, if you will. And that that has worked by and large for 244 years. The legal system, the court structure, 
all of that stuff is work, but it has to work based on the assumption of integrity and the assumption of love of country and love of system. If you bring somebody in that has a love of self, uh, well, you know, guess what? That, that system could be put in danger. Now, the good news is the system four years into this thing has held the integrity of the system is still by and large there. Although William Barr has corrupted the Department of Justice, I think it can be cured. The FBI is not corrupted. The SDNY is not corrupted. But but they've done heavy damage to the system. And maybe this is a wake-up call for everybody. Maybe this is a call to arms, not physical arms, God forbid, but verbal arms and activism to re-energize the system, renew the system, and to put in more protections about power. Look, all I can tell you is my life could have never happened in Europe. My parents were from peasants uh, that came here from Italy. Uh, My great-grandfather was a mason. My father's dad, my grandfather was a coal miner. Uh, These people had absolutely no money. They had no money in Southern Italy. They were coming here for some hope and opportunity. Uh, If it was an autocracy, what happens in an autocracy? You get a kleptocracy. You get a group of people stealing from the treasury. Look at what's going on in Russia. Venezuela, et cetera. And then you get a very large gap down where people are are uh, impoverished. But in a system like ours, a flatter system, you can really move uh, with your merit more than your bloodline. And so that's what the founders wanted. They got that and they 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 got very lucky. The good Lord put them on a uh, island continent uh, with great natural resources. And lo and behold, we expanded. Now, not a perfect place. If you read Jill Lepore's book, These Truths, we had racism. We had a genocide. Nobody talks about it, but we had a genocide during the Mexican-American War. We killed tens of millions of Mexicans. Uh, they had up to the 56th parallel, Mexico. We pushed it down south of the Rio Grande River. Uh, and so we, we perpetuated a genocide. We, we, we had a Native American genocide smaller than the Mexican genocide. Uh, We've had racism. We've had slavery. It is a far from perfect country. But there was an African-American woman I was interviewing yesterday who's in the venture capital space. She says, yeah, it really sucks. There's a lot of racism in our country. But imagine if I was an African-American woman 150 or 200 years ago. I accept the progress that we've made thus far. And let's continue forward with our progress. So but but what happened here is uh, the a large group of the population got very upset that they felt left out of uh, the gap in wealth. The economic transfers were going to the wealthy, the middle class, white collar, middle, I'm sorry, blue collar, white middle class was suffering and they got very angry. And so Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump capitalized on that. Remember, this isn't a top down problem, guys. This is a bottom up problem. There's a percolation from the bottom. The politician is reflecting what's going on in the zeitgeist of the society. Otherwise, that person can't get elected. If they're an anger-based, orange, tanned buffoon, screaming racial epithet at people, they won't get elected if the people are satisfied. If the people are unsatisfied, they get elected. And guys like me, unfortunately, make a mistake. We do some moral equivocation. We do some cognitive dissonance. We say, well, there's two choices. There's Secretary Clinton and there's the Republican choice. He's crazy, but he's my crazy. You know, the bumper sticker for 2016 was, this is a low life. 
but he's my low life. He's your low life. He's going to help us. But now the bumper sticker for 2020 is, no, we got that wrong. He's just a low life. So, so now you have to figure out what, what are we going to do? And then it turns out he's going to threaten the system because when he's searching on Google News, he's searching T-R-U-M-P. He's not searching USA. He's definitely not searching Y-O-U. He could give a shit about Y-O-U. It doesn't matter to him. So that's where we are. But we're going to fix it. This is going to get fixed. Yeah, you do a really good job of speaking about the Trump voter, because I think for some of us who, well, probably all of us who see his manifest unfitness for public office, we struggle with trying to understand what people see in him. Uh, And that makes us confront our own prejudices about other people. It's easy to dismiss someone as as dumb or uninformed, but I, I really appreciate the way you've spoken to what to a lot of these people is a rational decision to support them. Yes. I think everything you just said is, uh, is true. And I think, I think that uh, we have to acknowledge that we've had a breach in the system. We have to acknowledge that there's been a vacuum of advocacy for these types of people from both the establishments, you know, the establishment Republican or the establishment Democrat and the voter that voted for Trump, uh, the grandparent or great grandparent likely voted for FDR, likely voted for the grandparent or parent voted for Kennedy, John Kennedy or Lyndon Johnson. And so now that voter, for whatever reason, the Democrats said, you know what, we're going to focus on transgender bathrooms and marriage equality. We're not going to focus on white blue collar voters. And the Republicans said, well, that's not our base. We like corporations and giving corporations who happen to be people tax cuts, right? Corporations are people. That's the Republican messaging. And so they left this very wide group of disaffected, angry people open for Mr. Trump. And I was moved by that because I grew up in a blue collar family. My dad was a crane operator, hourly worker. And I I saw him struggle, but we were in the middle class. It was an aspirational working class family. 30 short years later, these are desperational working class families. And oh, by the way, if you're not going to help me, at least I got a son of a bitch that's going to stick a finger in the eye of the establishment. So I, I, I have Mr. Trump as an avatar of my anger to thumb it into the eye of an elitist, into the eye of an intellectual, into the eye of someone in the media that's looking down on me and I haven't gotten my fair shake. Yeah, he's a prick, but he's my prick. Yeah. And so but what he's done is he's he's pushing down and dividing. He's not lifting up and unifying. So what he's done is he's 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 going after the worst part of our natures. Mm -hmm. He's not appealing to the better angels of our nature. He's going after our weaknesses. Let's divide each other. You should be mad and you're mad. And by the way, I'm mad, too. And so let's cream. Let's trigger Let's own, let's own the other side. What can we do today to own the other side? Well, I can tell them I'm going to be in power till 2048. Let me throw some memes up on my Twitter feed. That'll own them, you know, or let me say this, or let me do that. Let me put women in cages and separate them from their children at the border. That'll own them. See what I mean? It's the wrong way to govern. What I don't understand though, is he's clearly smart enough to get elected to the presidency, 
how is he not able to make an adjustment? You know, you take June 1st, we've got the clearing of the square and George Floyd and, you know, all the protests that are happening. How is he not able to say, you know, if I just give them this one speech one time, I'm going to have a lot of people at least look at me again. What is it about his just drive to just try to bully his way to people seeing it his way? Well, what you just said would have to be an admission that he's he was wrong directionally about something. Let's say he had cleared that square. He had walked up to St. John's Church with the Bible. So he was holding it, as I said, in the frontline documentary, like it was a soiled toddler's diaper. But let's say he held up the Bible and he made a speech. He said, listen, I'm in front of the church. This church is a bipartisan church. I was here the day of my inauguration. By the way, I was in the church with him that morning, that very same church. And, you know, uh, Abe Lincoln prayed in this church and this church, uh, uh, Democrats and Republicans have come into this church 160 years. And uh, I'm here in front of the church to pray for the country and pray for the unification of the country. And by the way, I recognize that there is racial discord and tension and anxiety, but I am the president of all people. And even if you didn't vote for me, you know what, I'm going to work my hardest to try to figure out a way to heal some of these fissures and to bring people together. And so, but then if he did that, that's against the 45, 50 year playbook uh, because that would have been an admission that he had gotten it wrong. Same way he has gotten the COVID-19 crisis wrong. He could not, he did not protect his family. He did not protect the country. He did not protect himself because he believes in fake science. He's calling out people and saying fake news but he personally believes in fake science because if it didn't, the scientific fact of the illness didn't fit the narrative that he needed for his reelection. And there's great irony in that because if he had said, Hey, wow, I sat down with these guys. It's March 1st. This is an unmitigated disaster. This is actually the movie contagion starting Gwyneth Paltrow and uh, Matt Damon. We're going to go into a national lockdown, national shelter at home, I'm going to coordinate. I don't care if you're a red governor or blue governor. We're going to all coordinate together. By the way, I'm masking up right now. I want every single person in the country to wear a mask. I talked to the president of South Korea. They had SARS and MERS. This is what the guy told me to do. I'm using the best practices from East Asia to contain the virus. And, uh, and I'll be in touch with you. Every week, we won't do a press conference every day, but we'll do a press conference once a week. And I'm going to tell you what's really going on so that you can do the best that you can to protect your family. But he knew that. uh, No, sorry, go ahead and finish. No, no, but he didn't do that because he didn't think that fit his best interest, right? So there's an intellectual vacuity to his assessment. Mm -hmm. So his thing was, okay, this is a bunch of BS. Didn't really understand the uh, R not factor of a virus or the compounding phenomena of it. I'm going to pretend that it's not real. I'm going to go to my base. Oh, it turns out that my base is clinging to me because my base has nothing. And so I'm going to go to my base and tell them mistruths. They're going to believe these mistruths in almost a cult like personality, cult like manner. They're going to support me no matter what. I can shoot people on Fifth Avenue. They're going to still support me. And so I'm going to tell them it's a hoax. I'm going to tell them it's going to go away. I'm going to wish it away. And so it's a tragedy because there's hundreds of thousands of people that have died, millions of people that have gotten sick. 
Uh, Would we have had deaths? Sure. Would we have had disease? Yes, it was unavoidable. It is a global pandemic, fits right into the historical patterns of other global pandemics, but we could have curtailed it. Yeah. Let Let me give you these quick stats. South Korea, same day, January 21st, gets the illness on the same day. They have 20 deaths per million. We have 605 deaths per million. Does that make sense to anybody? If it makes sense, then, you know, you're watching Fox or OAN News, and I guess mm-hmm. you, you know, pretend that it makes sense. does not make sense to me. Somebody that loves the country, genuinely loves human beings, genuinely loves people, accepts human frailty, accepts human weakness, my own human weakness. The best among us, Churchill said, will accept human frailty and weakness with great compassion and kindness. We choose not to overly judge human weakness, but not this guy. This guy, he's in the wrong place in the wrong time for this country. Yeah, you're right. It was going to be hard. This pandemic was going to be difficult no matter who was in power. But there's no doubt this was horribly mismanaged and we would be in a far better shape had someone else been running this this um, railroad, so to speak. You said something in the, the Frontline documentary that I thought really was interesting. It connected with me personally when you were describing Trump's view on people and how he held, quote, being a killer as a virtue. You know, and what that means to him is being tough, ruthless, successful, doing what needs to get done. That connected with me because being on Wall Street for 30 years, working on trading desks, I actually know that personality type really well. And it's usually that kind of bluster is usually hiding something. And you in the doc said something in the way you described Trump that I want you to elaborate on where you said, the truth is he's an open wound. And I thought I thought it was really fascinating I'd like people to hear your description of it because you yeah, know him because so well. I, I'm not somebody that demonizes the president. I'm also somebody that um, had a good relationship with him. He's a gregarious guy. There was a charm to his personality. Uh, he's well-suited as a rencontre, a radio show host, a television reality show host. But he's not suited for the office of the presidency. That is a totally different skill set. Now, the irony is the skill set that he had is the right skill set to help you get the presidency. Because remember, the presidency is a popularity contest. It is not a hiring process. So, you know, the people are looking for somebody charismatic and entertaining. They're inviting that person into their homes every single night. So it's got to be somebody they want to look at or at least listen to. Or if they think the person's nuts, it may be funny or entertaining for them. Uh, and so he doesn't have the intellectual curiosity Uh, to be the president, but he is an open wound, meaning something happened to him in a very dysfunctional family. If you read Mary Trump's book or you listen to Judge Mary Trump or you listen to the president himself, he he had a rough father. Uh, There was probably a void there in terms of him trying to appease or to get his father's approval. And then they sent him to military school, which means he had probably some level of truancy to his personality. Uh, I think it's clear you don't have to be a rocket scientist or a psychiatrist or a teacher to see that the president has some kind of learning disability. You know, when Joe Theismann got hit by Lawrence Taylor and his leg broke on national television, if you were watching it, you didn't need to be an orthopedic surgeon to say, oh, my God, that guy broke his leg. His leg's going in a direction that legs don't go in typically. And so if you look at the president, you say, wow, okay, this guy 
has been hit very hard by his family. He's an open wound looking to soothe that wound, looking to fill that void. And if you watch interviews, he did an interview with Megyn Kelly. He said, well, somebody hits me, I'm going to hit him 10 times harder. Uh, yes, I do enjoy inflicting pain on other people because I feel pain. And so therefore it helps me and makes my pain go away. This is how he talks. And so therefore, uh, there's a sadness to that. To me, I, I sense tragedy there. I don't want to demonize the president. Uh, we can if, if we, we run the risk if we're demonizing somebody, their ardent supporters won't listen. And they'll say, oh, OK, this guy's got Trump derangement syndrome. But what I said in the documentary, I don't have Trump derangement syndrome. I have Trump is deranged syndrome. It's very different from Trump derangement syndrome. I'm yeah. looking at it qualitatively, quantitatively, I'm looking at it objectively. Let's say the three of us were on the board of a publicly traded company. We had two choices. We were the hiring, we were the selection committee for the CEO. We get choice A, Secretary Clinton, choice B, Donald Trump, whatever reason, we picked Donald Trump. We have now four years of documentary evidence of this man's behavior, his policy decisions, uh, his uh, style, the content of his Twitter feed, his communication style, his racist dog whistles. Uh, what would we do? We would seek immediate removal. There's no way the three of us, first of all, our, our, our outside counsel would be coming, running into the board. Like, you guys crazy? You're going to get right. sued. Right. You got to get rid of the guy immediately. Right. Okay. But we're in, we're in politics. And so if you're, you're, you're a traitor, if you say that, or you're a snowflake or you're a, this flake, no, I'm an objective person that loves my country and I have a higher order of principles related to patriotism than I do partisanship. Right. Patriotism is up here. My partisan is at last comparatively. And so I'm looking at the situation. I love my country. We got to get rid of this guy's a loon. Yeah. You talk about kind of the skill set that it takes to get the office and then the skill set that it takes to be in the office. And, you know, uh, Trump has never shown an ability to operate, but he has shown a great ability to market. And so here, this election is different. This election says something about us because we've now seen him as an operator. It's one thing to have seen him as a marketer. And Mm -hmm. so where do you come out on? our ability to learn whether someone is an effective operator and how we then respond. Well, you have something else going on at the same time, which he's capitalized on. You have a fragmented media and therefore you now have a narrative going in certain media sects where there's certain groups in the media that are trying to narrate a culture war. So if you live in Vegas, is my life in New York really impacting your life? Let's say I'm a gay man living in Greenwich Village and I have a married, I married my spouse, also a gay man. Is that affecting your life in, in, in Las Vegas in any way, shape or form? No, it isn't. But if you watch certain media channels, uh, yes, this is a disaster. And they're trying to take Christ out of Christmas and they're trying to do this and trying to do that. Oh, and by the way, uh, uh, Donald Trump and William Barr, they're the two last white men standing between the black and Hispanic latte drinking transvestites that are going to come over the transom and take over your culture and your country. This is a false narrative. It's not true. America is a polyglot country. It's been that way for 200 plus years. We can all live our own individual liberty in America without having to hear that nonsense. But now we've got that nonsense, a very large group of people that believe that. Also, we're shooting 
light through a prism at Fox News. It's a hagiographic prism, and it's shooting a light into a 1950s America of Arthur Fonzarelli and Richie Cunningham. And it's shooting a light. Oh, that's how America was, and that's how it should be. But that was never America. That America had black and white lunch counters. That America had Jackie Robinson being called the N-word as he was the first African-American to show up in a major league baseball park. So, so that was an America in the mid-50s that we were segregating the school systems and Brown versus the Board of Education said that we couldn't do that anymore. So if you want the mosaic of America and you want the America of progress and you want the America that we want to believe in, the ideal of America, you have to reject that. You can't accept that. But he's got 40 percent of the base because of that. And he could still win the election because of that thing that we talked about, the Electoral College. But no, I predict he will not win the election. He's going to try to cheat his way there now. Now they're openly and flagrantly suppressing votes and moving polling machines and all this other stuff. But I still think he will lose the election. But you asked a very good question. What about us? What does it say of us and our ability to select people to lead us? And the answer is we've gotten discombobulated because we've lost our civic virtue. Sad to say this. I'm almost emotional about it. We've lost our national purpose. Uh, My uncle, who I'm named after, my uncle Anthony, uh, was on Normandy Beach at age 19. He survived the beach. He got wounded in France three weeks later. He was in a hospital, didn't want to come home. My grandmother was trying to get him home. He was wounded. He had the right to be discharged. He didn't want to come home. He ended up at Potsdam. Okay, decorated by the French, Purple Heart from the United States. Uh, He died on Memorial Day, which was very, very fitting in 2005. But he lived with a national purpose. All the presidents met. And the final days, what did Woodward say in the book, The Final Days? He interviewed the Republican senators who kicked out Richard Nixon. And he said, to, and he wouldn't give their names, but I know one of them for sure is Bob Dole. And they said, okay, so you, why, you told the guy to go. Why don't you stick with him? He said, well, let me tell you something. About 20, in 1944, I was in Salerno, Italy, and I was fighting the Nazis. And I had my rifle and my friend had his rifle and he was standing here and I was standing there and a Nazi sniper hit him in the head and blew his head off. So if I was standing there, I would have been dead. Any veteran knows a lot of the casualty stuff is luck, which is why they're so pissed off at Trump for saying, I like them better when they're not captured. Because anybody that's been in a war knows it's luck. So his head split like a cantaloupe. He died in front of me, but he died for that document. He died for our freedom. He died for Western liberal liberalism and Western ideas. And so now Richard Nixon is subverting the Constitution of the United States. I'm sorry. My best friend Tommy died for that document. Yes, we are partisans. And yes, I want to help you, but I'm a patriot first. We're not ripping up that document for you, you son of a bitch. Okay, I'm kicking you out for my friend Tommy, who's laying in an unmarked grave somewhere in Italy. You see where we were 80 years ago? Now we're now we are where we are. We got to fix it, guys. We will. We will fix it. But you think but it's we have because- to explain it to the American people first. Once we can explain it, then we can fix it. You're not going to be able to fix the problem until you can acknowledge the problem and diagnose it. But you think it's because we've gotten soft? We haven't had those conflicts. We haven't had a clear enemy. And so no, we're, I, I you know, think why do you think the, the, the think senators have stood up to them? 
I think it's because our politicians moved away from national purpose to personal self-interest. Okay, so when George Kennan was briefing George Marshall and Harry Truman about containing communism, they didn't give a shit about lining their pockets from lobbyists. They were like, yeah, we're going to contain communism. We're going to keep the world free. And so what happened is our politicians gravitated. We became less interested. We became indifferent and they took advantage of it. Washington is not a swamp. I got an 11 day PhD in Washington scumbaggery. Okay, it is not a swamp. It is a gold-plated hot tub with no drain. And they sit in there and they smoke Cubanos and they pass champagne. And they go around in a circle while the American people are disadvantaged and they're getting pissed off about it. So, so no, we don't need a conflict. We just need a national purpose. If every one of us served in the military, I'm not saying we need to do that, but let's say we had a national service. You graduated from high school. Okay, that's great. Where are you going to be deployed in the National Park Service for a year? to uh, put out, uh, to rake the forests or whatever they do to do, or, or where are you going to clean up that park? Or, okay, you know, you're going to the Peace Corps. We're going to send you to Latin America, but you're serving the United States. You're going to have a 12 week program on what that means and what the country should mean to all of us. And all of a sudden, no matter where you are in the United States, you're coming together, right? Bob Dole said, well, yeah, I liked Edmund Muskie. Why'd you like him? Well, he did this and he did that. And they all had this shared experience. Well, he was from here and I was from there. Who cares? Now we've balkanized the country. And now we've decided with great sanctimony that wherever you are from the country, and whatever your culture is in the country, it's better than the other people. We don't need that. We need to restate and reaffirm our national purpose. And we need to explain to people, whatever your lifestyle is, uh, the country was set up to allow you to live it. That's what the First Amendment is about. I don't need to See, I don't like this whole Supreme Court thing. I'm a conservative. I'm a longtime conservative and a, and a libertarian. But we have a woman that we just picked for the court, and she's basically saying, well, I'm going to use the freedom of religion to project my religion upon you. Okay, well, that's not what the document says. I thought you were an originalist. I thought you were a original interpreter of the Constitution. You know, we're not we're not putting religion into it because the founder said no religion in it. Right. Practice your religion. Do whatever the hell you want. But don't pull, impose your religion on me. You see what I'm you see what I'm getting to. See, so what happened to me accidentally and Ed knows this because he worked on Wall Street. I was a poor kid that wanted to get rich. So I went to Wall Street and I couldn't build my network because even though I went to Harvard, that was an old boys network, but I was a young boy at an old boys network. I never hit a tennis ball, never swung a, 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 a golf club. So there I was. So I started writing campaign checks to politicians. Why? Because rich people hang out with politicians. So now I'm going to those parties. I wrote a check to Rudolph Giuliani. I'm in the party. There's rich people there. I've got a, I've got a service I'm selling from Goldman Sachs. What do you think happened? I meet rich people. They like the reputation of Goldman. They like me. I grow my business. You see what happened? So I was a mild-mannered Republican Party donor. And accidentally, because Looney Tunes got to the White House, you know, I interviewed Jeb Bush on my podcast this week. I said, Jeb, you ruined my life. If you only won the goddamn presidency or the nomination, I would have been nowhere near the White House. You would have never let me be the White House communications director. (laughs) But I'm in it now, man. And so I'm in it now. I love the country. Let's go. Yeah, this I, by the way, I, I know how to fight. You're going to come at me. I know how to come right back at you. I'm not, I'm not afraid of you. 
well, this idea of national purpose and this, and the rehabilitation of civic life is so important. And it's frustrating because you, you want everyone to understand that the integrity of our systems are so much more important than our own personal preferences or Correct. ideology or, or policy. Um, the policy we want, you know, there's, you know, you have to consider the long-term damage to our institutions and what that does to the structural advantage that we enjoy by the global U.S. dollar standard. That's really sort of this invisible superpower we have that most Americans don't understand that our ability to create assets and liabilities globally by issuing bonds in our own currency is how we've been able to, to not only fund a way of life and well-being for our own citizens, but also um, create a depth and breadth of capital markets that's helped the world grow globally, which has lifted people out of poverty. No and, we, and, and you know we've been a, a central force for good with all of our flaws. And I don't think people appreciate just how fragile that potentially is, that that, that advantage is not something we should consider permanent. Well, you and I not only totally agree, I would just reemphasize what you're saying is that uh, uh, we've had this wonderful bounty in the post-World War II era, and we're losing our mantle of leadership because we're not defining what our national purpose should be. And so if we have a problem in our educational system, we have no national plan. We have a problem in our infrastructure. There's no long-term plan. Tell me a politician. Let me ask you this rhetorically. Tell me the politician that you know that has a 10-year plan. Let's call it an industrial policy plan, an infrastructure plan, an education plan, a jobs training plan. Where's a 10-year plan? Uh, The Chinese have them. The Saudis have them. They got McKinsey writing them for them. What about the United States? What's our 10- or 15-year plan? Where are we going in the United States? Where do we want to go in the United States? No, I don't have a plan. What I want to do is I want to smack up and beat the living hell out of my opponent on cable news and the news cycles, three to five minutes. Let me smack him up. He's going to smack me up. Okay, but we want to stay in power. So let me gerrymander my enemies out of my district. He can gerrymander his enemies out of his district. That's okay, because we have a very strong duopoly and we'll just rotate the elites and we'll smoke the cigars in the gold-plated hot tub that doesn't have a drain. Yeah, and the incentives, cool. the incentives, the incentives are all wrong. The incentives are to win the yeah, moment. The incentives, but remember, these are very smart people. So you can't say that they're dumb people. So they just have different incentives than us. So let me give you something I said in DC in 2016, and I was sneered at by the politicos in DC. And by the way, they couldn't wait to get rid of me, as General Kelly said. They hate guys like you because you can't be bought. You built your own business. You show up in Washington, they look at you and they say, bought, can't be bought. Bought, can't be bought. If you can't be bought, they oppo research you and they try to blow your ass out of there as quickly as possible. They don't want you telling the truth to people. You know, when I got done with my press conference, I was walking upstairs to the Oval Office. My cell phone rang. It was one of my buddies. Look at that on timing. Look at that, how that rang. Just the same time, let me just shut that off. Cell phone rings. It's one of my buddies. He says, what the hell are you doing? I said, what are you talking about? This is a guy you guys know. This is a well-known guy in the Republican Party. He says, you, you can't talk like that from the White House press box. What are you, nuts? <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? I thought it went pretty well. He goes, you're telling those fucking people the truth. What are you, fucking crazy? I have aides, congressional aides calling me saying, what do you got on this guy? And they're Republicans. 
Like, get rid of this guy, man. We got to get rid of him ASAP. He's going to tell the American people the truth about the deficit and about the education. What are you, are you crazy? Can't do that. And he goes, shut up. That was a horrible press conference, the guy said. To me. Okay, so if you can't be bought, you're blown out. But if you can be bought, come into the hot tub. See what's going on? But no plan. We have no plan. And so now people have said, okay, forget it. I'm totally apathetic. There is no plan. The Republicans don't even have a platform now because they're in a full-blown personality cult. So I'm dripping now with cynicism. Let me focus on my kids and my family and let me not vote. But guys, you live in Vegas. God bless you. There's no state income tax. I live in New York. I'm a minority partner in my own life. If a dollar comes into me at my tax bracket, I get to keep 44 cents. Bill de Blasio, Andrew Cuomo, and Donald Trump are the majority partners in my life. So they're getting all the treasure. I'm getting some of the crumbs from my life and my production. So shouldn't I be involved with the hiring decisions? You got to, you got to get involved with the hiring decisions. Right, you caught me on a very caffeinated day because I've been up as a result of Trump having COVID-19. You know, this, this so I'm, 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 I'm obviously jacked up today. I apologize for that. But I'm, I just want you to know what is really going on from my why perspective. Are you, why are you so hopeful, though? You know, I mean, if, if D.C. is this way and there's a duopoly and we're just rotating uh, who's running that duopoly, what, why are you so optimistic about the future? Because of what Abraham Lincoln said 160 plus years ago, he said in one of the Douglas debates, he was debating Stephen Douglas. They were talking about the aptitude of the American people. And Lincoln looked over at him and said, hey, listen, you may not think they're smart, but the American people have a very good nose. And they can smell a rotting cadaver in their basement, is what Lincoln said. And, th- and at that time, the rotting cadaver was slavery. And his point was, you know, and, and if you really understand Lincoln, and this is great paradoxes to Lincoln, he wasn't necessarily wanting to get rid of slavery as much as he was trying to heal the union. It became a political instrument to emancipate the slaves to heal the division in the union. And by the way, Lincoln wanted to send the African-Americans back to Africa. That's why Liberia and all that stuff was being created. So Lincoln's a complex guy. I'm not saying he was perfect either, but he understood something about America that I believe. We can smell that there's something rotten. And so therefore, if you look at the population, there's enough smart people will say, okay, you know what? I'll subject myself to that bullshit to see if I can fix it or try to fix it because uh, my kids' lives are at stake. So you know that good political executive leadership leads to a higher quality of life. We had 20 years of it in New York City. We now have eight years of incompetence and look at what's going on in that city versus what was going on in the city eight or 10 years ago. And so it's the same thing with the country. We have to, it won't be our generation because we we screwed it up, but it'll be millennials. There'll be millennials that are data dependent, that they care more about what is the right or wrong policy for America, as opposed to the left or right policy for America. And and we'll fix it because any time that we've gotten into a situation like this in the 244 years, happened in the 1830s, obviously happened in the 1860s, it happened again in the 1890s, then it happened again in the 1930s into the World War, we fixed it. We renewed ourselves. You also have this wonderful influx of people that are coming in that actually believe in the idealism of America still. Trump has hurt hurt our standing, but he hasn't hurt the standing of the American people. 
He's hurt our standing as a government in terms of our reliability as an alliance, and he's denigrating the Western leadership, and he's praising autocrats. So he's certainly hurt our standing at the governmental level. But go ask people about the American people around the world. Love the American people. They love our culture. They love our rock and roll. They love our freedom. You know, there's a reason why there are not popular cultural global icons coming out of China. There's no freedom. If you are if you are closing down two thirds of the internet and you can't say certain things, okay, well then guess what? You can't be that iconic person, that rebel that young people want to be attracted to. Our culture has been our best export and it's been our best weapon against authoritarianism and it's been our best advertisement for freedom. Because it's a microeconomic culture. You're representing your family, the way you dress and the way you handle yourself. I'm doing it for my family. The three of us look like shit, by the way. That's another comment that I would just make from a fashion observation. But but the point is, that's what we're doing. And so and so what happens is Kanye West, he's maybe crazy but he's an incredibly talented artist. And guess what? His music is going to proliferate around the world. Steven Spielberg is a filmmaking genius. And so therefore he's able to export that content and that ingeniousness around the world. And so we're we're going to figure it out. And I'm not just saying that in some jingoistic politicians way of saying it because I, I fucking hate politicians and I'm not a politician. I'm saying that as an American, I'm saying that as an observation of what we're capable of and what our skill set is. Anthony, I I want to backtrack into, you know, the sensitive topic of race uh, because you are in a unique position to know the president pretty well. Um, And I don't want to psychoanalyze him or. He's a white supremacist. Let's put it on the table. He's a white supremacist. Whether or not, you know, sometimes people get in these debates, he is or isn't racist. I, I think that's not even useful because it is undeniable that he gives cover to racists, that he uh, validates their animus towards people who are different than them. He activates these prejudices and he uses it as a political uh, cudgel. He can't even take the freebie. I mean, the absolute freebie that any politician should just hit out of the park of being able to condemn white supremacy and hate groups. So what, what the hell's going on there? Well, it's a combination of things. You know, he's not condemning them because he thinks he needs them. He thinks it's part of his base. He's not condemning because it's indigenous in his personality to think like that. He believes in eugenics. He was telling the people in Minnesota that they had great genes and they were going to survive the coronavirus. He said to me in the Oval Office, he said, hey, look at this. This is my uncle from MIT. He's a superstar professor. He's a genius. You know, it's in your genes. He's a genius, so therefore I'm a genius. So he believes in eugenics. Mm -hmm. So this is as if Joe McCarthy had a baby with Charles Lindbergh. And then the baby got born and Roy Cohn was the nanny for the baby. OK, and now we got that person grows up and becomes the president of the United States. So so this is a full on white supremacist, nativist, racist. And so, by the way, I said that on the Don Lemon show the other night. It didn't even break news. It didn't break news because wow. how can you break news? We know that that's what he is. And so why are we even pretending anymore? That's what he is. The question is, are there enough of them to put him back in the White House? Or are there enough people that, you know what, I'm actually not a racist. I don't give a shit about my skin color. 
You know, I don't care, care about your skin color. I want, I care about if you're a good person or not. I don't want that sort of behavior coming from the American president. You know, somebody said to me, well, what finished you with the guy? Well, he told those women to go back to the countries that they originally yeah. came from. Right. What do you say? I told my grandmother that. Right. I just told you guys, two of my uncles were in the second world war, two of my uncles. So what are you guys doing? It's really upsetting to me as a person that loves people, loves the country, uh, wants to see human progress and innovation and wants to figure out a way to help my kids live in a better world than the ones that you and I lived in. What are you doing? And by the way, we've got this amazing country, unbelievable amounts of resources, unbelievable amounts of technology, unbelievable amounts of talent. What are we doing? Yeah, right. it may is it this, may be that is this the best that we can do. Yeah, what are we doing? It may be that this uh, election, more than any other, at least in the last hundred years, is uh, just about who we are and where we're going. Ed has this great point that you know an election is just a time when the market is open. The market's not open to sell Starbucks on Saturdays or Sundays. You know, there are times where the market is closed, and this market's been closed. For four years, we have four years of quarterly reports showing us how this country is going to operate and telling us what we're about. And the market's about to open. I don't know how you come back from this if the market opens and we think, yeah, I want to stay in in, with this management team. Right. I don't see it. So I'm going to make the bet that he loses. Having said that, and by the way, Mother Nature sent a signal to everybody last night. And what's that signal? Something's wrong, guys. Okay, remember, remember, this is not a hiring decision for most people. It is a popularity contest, but it's it's how a politician makes you feel. So those people are voting for him. Yeah, you're my representative. You're my anger representative. I'm voting for you. But Mother Nature just told you, hey, there's something's wrong. Something is wrong. The guy doesn't believe in science. The guy's not protecting your family. The guy is lying through his teeth. The guy can't manage anything to use your point, Perry. He's not an operator. So he couldn't manage the West Wing or the executive branch. So when the crisis came, they ran around with chickens, like their heads were cut off. And so they couldn't run the country in that crisis. And so here we are. Yeah, I really connect, you know, with your immigrant sensibilities. I find that the people who are in touch with their immigrant roots are the most patriotic. And maybe I'm a little biased because I was born in Brazil. And when I was born, I was born in a country that was under a military dictatorship as a result of a coup that had happened years earlier. And so I didn't even know how lucky I was until I got a little older and came to the United States. And shortly after my family came, the leader of the country had to resign because he broke the law. That's an amazing thing to think about. And Americans take that for granted. That's not how it works. And there's well, just so much to protect. We're going to take it for granted anymore. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Fuck. I mean, look at this guy. He's an abject criminal. I mean, him and his family are just a bunch of grifters. I mean, yeah. you know, what's amazing about the COVID-19 thing is it's it's eclipsing the tax situation where he's paid no taxes. It's eclipsing the racist situation where he's blowing hard on the racist dog whistle. It's eclipsing the fact that they're removing polling stations from Houston, Texas. They just knocked 200,000 people inappropriately off the voting rolls in Georgia said, you can't vote. So what do you mean? I can't vote. Well, no, we're just, you're not going to be able to vote. Okay. Now you don't even have enough time to cure it from the legal process perspective. 
So he's got COVID-19. That's the new story. But what about all this other stuff? You know, the, uh, Melania, I happen to like her. I mean, she's a little cold. I mean, the foreigner song, Cold as Ice, was like obviously named, written for her. But I mean, she's saying <laughs> fuck Christmas on the on the tape. Yeah. Okay. But that's, that's overlooked. No problem. Because I don't care. I want to go after his family. I'm just talking about like... We have this full-blown idiocy, full-blown incompetency, full-blown racism and separatism where we're dividing ourselves. And, you know, he's got COVID-19, so now we're going to focus on that. I said on CNN this morning, I don't want him to die from COVID-19, but I want him to go home to Mar-a-Lago to convalesce and recover. I don't want him in a White House. This guy's not fit to be in the White House. Doesn't have the skill set to run the White House. Right. And one last, he doesn't care about your family. Okay. You have to understand that he could care less about your family. Right. He cares about himself. That's it. Nobody I mean, else. The naked self interest is self evident. You know, that's it. Yeah. One last question, Anthony. You've been inside. I think a thing a lot of people are curious about. There have been so many people who have worked for the administration, who have left, who have come out, who have spoken publicly about what they've seen inside, just how chaotic it is, how disorganized it is, how poorly managed this administration has been. You know, I don't want to put you on the spot because I know you can't give up any names, but do you speak to people in, in the administration still? And do you get, do you think there'll be more people before the election that will come out? The answer to both of those questions is yes. And I said that on CNN over the last couple of weeks, this is more people come out. I'm not going to steal their thunder. Olivia came out. There's another woman who I don't know personally that just came out. Uh, Miles came out a few weeks ago. Uh, We have other people that are coming out. There'll be more information coming out. There'll be people resigning in protest over what's going on. And uh, the question is, will it be enough? It looks like it now. It looks like the polls, his uh, performance at the debate, the polls, the fact that he has COVID-19 and he's a COVID-19 denier, I think people have said, okay, whoa, 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 we're getting a little sick of this. This is a little exhausting. Like to go back to some level of normalcy. And oh, by the way, he's also threatening the the system and the checks and balances in the democracy. So I, I actually don't want that for myself or my family. And Joe Biden's a moderate and he may not be my my guy. And then, you know, Fox News is saying, well, this is a system debate. You know, this is a battle over capitalism or socialism and radical leftism of Ocasio-Cortez, not true. Wasn't the case for Obama. It's not the case for Joe Biden. And so, I mean, okay, what do you guys want to do? You want to keep telling lies to people to make money? Go ahead. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing it. I've lost business at Skybridge because of my big mouth. Don't care. Um, You're a guy who's taken a lot of shit. And I I just want to say publicly, since I have you here, um, I would tell you privately, uh, when we speak, but I want to say it on the podcast. You know, it's not often you see someone in public life own their mistakes and take responsibility and adapt to new information and change their mind like you have. And so I, I, I feel like you deserve a lot of credit. Well, it's you know, you, you say, you know, I mean, you, you know, this, you, you know, you know, this from investing, you know, it's okay to be wrong. It's not okay to stay wrong. That's how you lose a lot of money. I, but it, I, but it, but it, requires it is something very else. hard, guys. It is very hard because, you know, you're getting you're getting attacked. You're getting attacked by the Russian robots. That's not that big of a deal. But you're you're getting hit in a lot of different ways. Trust me, it, the system is not designed for people to admit their mistakes. Yeah, but you, you really do take a lot of a lot of shit, you know, and you have, you know, a New Yorker personality. You know, some people, you know, want to stereotype you or view you a certain way. But the reality is, is 
and I really mean this sincerely, more you're modeling a kind of behavior that I think more people should demonstrate the capacity to change their oh, mind I, when they have I, new information. I appreciate that. I'm going to have to invite you over for dinner because my wife is like, man, you, you, you know, you're out there, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I appreciate not just the intellectual and emotional intelligence that it takes to back up and examine any of uh, our own actions, but I appreciate the courage that you've had to, have to do that in public. That's that's a, a another layer to it. It's one thing for us to examine our own decisions privately, but to go out and publicly state, this is where I made a mistake, and these are the things I would improve, and this is what I'm hoping for for our country. Uh, that actually is the definition of patriotism. Well, it's very sweet of you guys. I appreciate you guys saying it. It does mean a lot to me because there's a lot of moments of doubt uh, that go into this thing. So I, it, I do appreciate that. And just to end it on a funny note, you know, when your kids are making a 17 minute compendium of late night television comedians ripping your asshole out of your body, it is a very existential experience. Okay? It is very funny. Okay. Now, I pray every night that my children will not release that onto YouTube. It'll get 20 million views, but it is literally. An evisceration of their father. You know what I mean? This is the reason why they're still in the will. This is the reason why I still got they're the beneficiaries on my life insurance policy, you know, because they could light me up at any moment. But they showed me this thing for my uh, 54th birthday. And I was like, oh, my God. I mean, it was just absolutely from John Oliver to Stephen Colbert to Bill Maher. I mean, they just came at me with a chainsaw. Well, you're on the right side of history. Well, I appreciate it. It, it. You know, it means a lot to me, guys. And I appreciate being on this thing. And hopefully you can come on my podcast after the election and we can have a, a round two of this conversation. Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks for doing this. All right, guys. God bless. Okay, Thanks. We'll right. Take okay, have a great weekend. You too. Thanks, Anthony. That was a great conversation, though, Ed. Yeah, it was good. You know, I was thinking about that documentary that we watched together a few weeks ago called Unfit. And uh, hopefully we're going to have the psychologist that was on that uh, in that movie on the podcast in, in, in the future. We're going to try to get that conversation on. But what was great about it was that film had nothing to do with policy or geopolitics in any respect at all. It was all about the psychology of, of a person like Trump. And it just makes me think about – I was thinking about it as Anthony was, was speaking – about him because he was he appears in the film and people try to understand Trump's behavior with logic or reason. And what I realized watching it is that to understand him, you have to focus on the pathology. You know, there is no strategy. He's all about winning the moment, the interaction of that time, whatever it may be. It's all confabulation and bluster to create an atmosphere where he dominates and he gets what he wants. That's right. Everything is uh, fully transactional, and that is his pathology. And what's interesting, and you've seen this, is he uses the idea of relationships, specifically loyalty, as a precursor to assure his transactional success. Right. And when he doesn't receive uh, the transactional success that he wants from the person, then he discards them. There is no such thing as loyalty. It's just a buzzword that he's using to trick people into thinking that there's a relationship there. Right. And if you try to apply logic to it, you get all pretzeled up because you can't figure out, you've never been able, you've never related to someone like this. I would imagine, you know, 
people who have been in abusive relationships, uh, you know, sort of see some sort of echoes of that when they, you know, watch how Trump operates. Yeah. One of the things that's interesting on that is um, I might get his name wrong and I apologize. I think his name is Scott Andrus and he is the creator of Dilbert, the cartoon. Scott, Scott Adams. Scott Adams. Okay. Thank you. And um, he said yesterday, uh, he's been a Trump supporter uh, throughout and he did a video yesterday where he said, you know, this was so easy for him to talk about um, uh, denouncing Proud Boys. It was such an easy moment. The ball was right there for him to hit, and he didn't. And I feel abused. Hmm. And I thought – I showed my wife. I was like, this is really interesting. It, you know, the veneer is coming off at such a rapid pace at this point because we all see the mismanagement of his operational skills. I, I do think that one of the interesting things about that conversation just now, Ed, is that I I don't think that it's an exaggeration to say that he's a patriot. No, of course he's a patriot. He's keyed in all the exact things that the people in this country need to focus in right now, not their petty differences or policy preferences. It really comes down to thinking about who we are as a country, protecting the ideals that got us here, standing up for what's right, and thinking much broadly about who we are. You know, there'll be a time to argue about what the marginal tax rate should be or what the health plan should be. All of these things are important. I don't mean to diminish them, but the big enchilada is protecting the franchise, the American franchise. Once we lose that, we won't get it back. Yeah, and I think that what I respect about the way he's approaching it is it's one thing to reflect on those things, to think about those things, to have conclusions on those things, but he's doing something different, which is he's putting it out into the public square to remind everyone that these institutions need, need to be protected and to know at the same time that the tomatoes that are going to be thrown are going to be thrown at him. That's the hard part. You know, and he's doing it in a way that even though he has you know, kind of this brashness to his personality, he is doing it in a way where he's um, very precise with his words and he is calm and measured and he – he communicates in a way that I respect where you have a chance of being heard by people who disagree with you because you're not attacking them. That's right. He's not jumping up and down, making this personal. He's trying to talk about what we all share and what we could all lose if we're not clear about how our government should operate. All right, Perry. Good to see you. That was fun today. That was fantastic. And I really appreciate, appreciate the conversation and uh, just who he is as a person and where he's going. Yeah. So should we sign off? Yeah, I think we should. Me or you? Uh, <laughs> you start. <laughs> this has been The Head and the Heart. I'm Ed Borgato. And I'm Perry Rogers. You can listen to our podcast on Podcast One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Subscribe and tell us who you want us to interview. Uh, we've been fortunate to have great subjects, and we'd like to hear who you'd want us to speak with. Follow us on Twitter. It's at head underscore heart underscore pod. Thanks, everyone.